This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Tyler Gore, who is the author of My Life in Crime, of Crime, Essays and Other Entertainments. Tyler, thanks for being here with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Rebecca. Could you talk a little bit about how this collection came to be and, and why you put it together? Yeah, so I had been writing um, these shorter essays that were personal essays, uh, humorous essays and publishing them in various small magazines. Um, I had a column for a little while in a, a small newspaper in Long Island. So um, Jacob Smolian, who is the founder of this press, Sagging Meniscus Press, was familiar with those. Uh, we knew each other and he'd been a fan of um, my writing. And he said, I would love to publish a collection of these essays. And I said, that's fantastic. Um, the thing is, is I'm working on an essay right now that I would love to include in there. And that's appendix that I, I, you know, the story about my appendectomy. And he's like, okay, you know, and I sent him a couple of pages. And I had thought that uh, appendix would be a longish essay, but no longer than maybe 20 pages, like uh, stuff or Clinton Street Days or both about that length. And man, that essay just kept growing until it is literally two thirds of the book. It's a novella length essay that is, um, you know, basically almost a book in itself. And so that's how this wound up being so weird where there's a bunch of short essays and there's this really long essay. And Jacob is is very um, supportive of his writers. And, you know, as this got longer and longer, I began to despair, but he was he was really supportive. He's like, keep going. I love what you're doing. It, it actually took quite a while where there was a lot of despair that I would never finish this, but he was actually great. So that's that's how this came about, the, the collection. And we can talk about that essay towards the very end, but I will say also that there's a point where you're like, 
do not despair or something like this reader. This is going to be the last sort of, you know? <laughs> and so, yes, that kind of fits in with what you're saying about never right. like, knowing this is going to end. And I did right. love that. I was like, that's great. Um, so let's start with the first essay though, in the title essay, my life of crime. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, your life of crime and putting together this essay and what's going on in it? Right. So lest your listeners, uh, you know, have the wrong idea. My life of crime has to do with things like uh, ring and run and ordering pizza for the neighbors. Th these these are my crimes in the title essay. I'm not a mafia dude or an ex-con or anything like that. Um, yeah. So my my the title essay, my life of crime, is is partly about uh, growing up in the burbs. I grew up in suburban New Jersey, just outside of the city, and about the stuff that we would do to entertain ourselves, including ordering pizzas for the neighbors. Yes, when you were a little older than you should be ordering pizzas yes. for the neighbors. <laughs> that's that's right. Yeah, because the 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 turn of the story really has to do with um when I moved back home for a little while while I was um my dad was sick and I was uh finishing my undergraduate degree. And I think there's a line in there that when you move back home, you find yourself doing the things that you did when you last lived there. And that's what happened. Yeah. Um, and I really love that you um, sort of ha are thinking about like the things that you were able to do. So I laughed through a lot of this because when I was younger, yes, we didn't have caller ID or we didn't have a cell phone. Like nobody we could block our numbers and nobody would know what they are. And it reminded me of my dad who was a teacher. And so we would have all these phone numbers of all the teachers and can prank them. Right. <laughs> but there's a point where that changes where you can't right. do that anymore. Right. Um, and sometimes you forget about that when you've been used to um, being able to. Right. Like, the the yeah. caller ID was uh, like the new technology when that story takes place. And I, I just completely forgotten about that. I, I often wondered, do, do kids still, make crank calls do you think you know i think they make crank calls to each other like they know that they're doing it like this is right. how I, I have two teenagers and yeah. i feel like that is kind of what they do like their crank is to kind of rickroll like literally still rickroll people right. or whatever it might be um and so that they know they're doing it so not in a way that they're going to um my son did tell me uh and he well no one's going to hear this that would know. Um, but they were at a soccer tournament and they had phones in the room. And so they did prank one of the <laughs> other rooms and pretending they were like somebody in the hotel and it was really loud and they wanted the people to settle down. So they did prank that way. Uh, um, but I don't know if that, I mean, that was just because they were like, what are these telephones? We can use it's, them. <laughs> it's the technology. Suddenly they were like, I can make an anonymous phone call. Yes. There it is. <laughs> I can pretend I'm an adult and get back at the other people in the room. So yes, I think um, sometimes that technology, yeah, it hurts us. We can't prank the way that we want to, or that we yeah. used to be able to. It's sort of sad, right? There was a, uh, God, who were those guys? The jerky boys used to have a whole, like they made, a, they made an entire career out of prank calls. Yes. Yes. I forgot all about those. Those are those people who you think you'll never have to think about again. And now you've just reminded me. And yeah, there you go. Uh, 
<laughs> so another thing you mentioned, you grew up in New Jersey, but you are a New Yorker um, and you live in New York. And so throughout this, uh, your relationship to New York, your relationship to sort of living in the city um, and what the city's like and what it was like um, sort of comes through throughout this. So can you talk a little bit about that and some of the ways in which um, New York plays a central role in the writing that you do and the work that you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I I feel um, my life of crime in some ways is a is a kind of love letter to New York. Um, I've lived here since um, I was in my early twenties. There was a couple of gaps, like the gaps when I was suddenly living back home for a little while. But for the most part, I've lived here all of my adult life, and. Um, you know, so the city's gone through a lot of changes. I, I, you know, first was living in the city in, um, I think I first lived here in 1991 on the Lower East Side on Clinton Street. So there's an essay in the collection called Clinton Street Days that's about that period of my life where I lived on the Lower East Side in the East Village, which was very, very different from now. Like the Clinton Street that I lived on in that essay <clears throat> was... Um, if you go there now, it is nothing like what it was back, you know, when I was there in the early 90s. When I was there in the early 90s, it was a largely Puerto Rican and Dominican neighborhood. It was um, not a particularly safe neighborhood because there was a lot of uh, heroin going on. Um, and it was it was really lively. Um, that aspect I, I, I really liked. But when you go there today... The population has changed. Um, I mean, the you know, there's still the old school that's still there, but um, you know, there's like really nice restaurants and bars up and down the street. There, there was no restaurant, like there was some takeout places, but that was it. So, the, you know, just using that street as a microcosm, like you know, the East Village has really changed. The Lower East Side especially has changed, and the city on the whole has gotten much richer less weirder. Uh, I think it's much harder for the kind of person that I was back then, like a, a young person kind of living kind of marginally, able to find a cheap place to live in a kind of dicey neighborhood. I think that is much harder today, even even in neighborhoods that are not particularly desirable. The rent is very, very high. So yeah. that's changed. Yeah, I was going to say it made me think of um, during the sort of mid throughout throughout most of the 90s I lived in Philadelphia and mm. we would uh, catch the Chinatown bus from Chinatown in Philly up to Chinatown in New York so we could go out and, and it was like like five bucks right to catch the bus and go out to clubs and yeah. do that and I often think when I you know your piece made me think about this too um, how afford we could do that right we could right. afford to do that we were probably um traveling and going in places we probably wouldn't do like at, you know at 24 and 25 we're like we can go anywhere it doesn't matter right yeah. that yeah now we probably five, be five, like five bucks to get yeah. to the city uh -huh. yeah. but like i was like the i keep saying I, i'm like the chinatown bus was the greatest thing ever i who knows yeah. it probably still runs but I'm like, and it would leave late at night, right? Like we could go out, we could get drinks, we could go to a club, we could come back. Um, yeah. And that's not something that is as probably doable and not affordable anymore, right? I could have like 30 bucks and make it to New York and back in, 
Yeah, I, I don't know what the buses go for these days with that. <laughs> like that's become a whole thing, but they're definitely not five bucks. That's for sure. Like I remember that. That was like this miracle. Like five. <laughs> you could go to from New York, I think, to DC for like five bucks. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it, and so it was like it's a very different. It's try, you know, it's a very different time, and yes, it's a little seedier. Like this made me also think of I really love um, Patty Smith, and I love Just Kids, and she kind of talks about a New York in this in a similar kind of way where it was a place you could live and be um, kind of an artist or exist in these spaces um, in ways that you can't. Like yeah, today. and <laughs> in fact, I think like even for my generation moving here in the 90s, we would look back to that period in the 70s where Patti Smith was here and CBGBs and all of those things were going on where, you know, that was the era, the only era where New York City's population decreased, the white flight, right? That where people were leaving for the suburbs, white people. Um, And so it, in retrospect, it seems kind of exciting. Like I have all these books on punk history and stuff like that. And, you know, I I was living just outside of the city as a teenager. Like the first time I ever went to CBGBs, I was probably 16 or 17. And I was coming into that city all the time, but I didn't live here. It must have been both excited. The city was quite dangerous back then too. It must have been exciting and dangerous, you know? And one of the things that sort of, it comes up in... um a number of these is sort of apartment living. Right. <laughs> yeah. And can you talk a you know you know talk a lot about sort of like this apartment you live in and like want you know wanting to stay there even though you probably shouldn't stay there because it things are not getting repaired, things are not getting fixed. So can you talk <laughs> a little bit about sure. right that idea of because throughout a number of these, right, you talk about different ways, you know, sort of those different living spaces. So can you talk a little bit about that? And- sure. Uh so um when you talk about like I know I should move, this is in appendix, which uh the appendix is about my appendix surgery in 2016 and uh i'm married and so i'm talking about all the problems with this apartment where i'm like you know my wife says we should move but i can see the statue of liberty out my window so i don't want to move um i am speaking to you from that apartment we still live here um yeah it's it's exactly like i describe it in the essay like you know by new york standards which are horrible standards it's it's a pretty decent apartment like you know it's got three bedrooms even though one is like the size of a closet um you know it's near the supermarket the laundromat but yeah the, the guys who own my building they'll never listen to this so i i'll just tell you they are so cheap they to the point where it's like you know repairs the kinds of repairs where you know if you fix that now you won't have like a thousand dollar disaster later on no they're always like yeah but that's a hundred dollars you know so it's badly maintained and everybody in this building is from time to time become involved with maintaining it because they they don't but that's New York, you know. Um, I've always lived in walk-ups. They've always been a little bit crappy. Um, you know, I, I know people who live in even really expensive and nice apartments. You Apartment buildings, you just have problems. You always have leaks, neighbors, noise. Um, but mine is particularly run down. So, yeah. And so I, I've lived in this apartment for quite a while. 
Um, I think other apartments are described in the other essay, Clinton Street, which we were just talking about, where I just kept moving every few months, um, uh, including falling behind on my rent in one apartment where I decided it was time to go. <laughs> and, you know, that reminded me, too, of like sort of my first apartment on my own and thinking about how it was so easy to be or I don't know if I can pay this. So you send the check, but you forget one aspect of the check so that they have to send it back to you or oh. you accidentally send the wrong check right that, it's like oh i didn't mean that these are um, tricks i wish i knew back right? then yeah <laughs> i i you know i was really lame with just only uh the check is in the mail kind of thing but not the, the i forgot to sign it oh i'm so sorry i forgot yeah. to sign it i will get why don't you get that back to me and i'll sign it by the time i get paid so that That's, yes I, I i hope you have some young listeners out there in their first apartments <laughs> remember that you learned it on this show <laughs> that they can actually <laughs> use checks with like oh yeah they don't know I, what checks no, are. no no i mean <laughs> i have yes i have a senior in high school and the other day we were talking about something and I said, do you actually know how to write a check? Cause you're probably going to need to at some point write a check. And he's like, I think I learned at one point, but why? Cause my mom sent him a check for his birthday. And he's like, <laughs> he is old. Like, what am yeah. I supposed to do with this? And I'm like, you deposit it in the bank. It still works. I promise. Right. That's so funny. <laughs> like, what do I do with this? I know. <laughs> I'm like, it, it. just take it. Like it's still money. I promise it works. <laughs> but it's that idea, yes, that idea. Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So the other, you have this um, three um, international recipes that I really oh. loved your recipe. Oh, thank you. Um, I teach, one of the, the projects I do with students in, is doing sort of multi-genre writing. And so I often um, have them write recipes for different things. So oh, this, wow. right? Oh, so that's great. Yes, right. So often they're like recipes for love or recipes for you know, you know, surviving a zombie apocalypse or something like that. Yeah. Um. Or you know, probably recipes for meeting Taylor Swift at this point. Right. But can you talk a little bit about your recipes and um the that sort of piece? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I love that format. That's so cool that you, um, you assign them to your students. Like th there's something really rich about the recipe format. So the three international uh, recipes in here are, uh, I always forget the titles of them, uh, deep fried cheesy snacks, uh, gloomy raisins, and a very nasty squid. And each of these was supposed to be you know, the deep fried cheesy snacks is obviously an American specialty. Gloomy raisins is British and a very nasty squid, of course, is French. Um, yeah, they're just these really absurd recipes. Um, I, I have long wanted to try to make them. A friend of mine wants to do that because, uh, you know, deep fried cheesy snacks particularly sounds like, um, you know, it's, it's just basically all cheese that's been microwaved and boiled and, it would be interesting to try to make it. Um, I think 
my and the squid one is my favorite one and that that recipe is actually kind of more or less basically how you cook a squid so you know i just had fun with the directions of that to put like a kind of tone in it and the tone i think was a tone of despair like i i think with the deep fried cheesy snacks um you serve with cans of beer and it serves you know four unemployed friends <laughs> stuff like that yeah. yeah i mean i grew up in the midwest right so like the deep fried cheesy snacks seemed <laughs> like something i could get at like minnesota state fair i was like right. oh yeah and then you just have this with well we would probably in the Midwest, this would be something you serve with. I don't even know if ham spear exists anywhere outside the Midwest, but like, you know. It's not what I know. Is that yeah, like a, exactly. it's like like a, a 3% beer or something? No, or? it is real. It's, it's all, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's just like, cheap. <laughs> yeah, um, that, yeah, you could get a case of that for, you know, four bucks, like, or whatever, you know, it's one of those. Yeah. Um, it, it was like, you know, it's like PBR before PBR got hip became suddenly weirdly hip yeah mm -hmm. yeah i, I used to drink old, old milwaukee in college yes yes yeah like a case for like nothing you know yes and then if you recycled them and you got it in bottles and returned it it'd be even cheaper uh-huh mm -hmm. we did recycle them yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah of course you have five and, cents back uh -huh. well yeah and here if you lived in iowa you got 10 cents back so we loaded up my friend's car from iowa and he would just bring <laughs> it back to iowa <laughs> And then we have even more beer money. So right. another tip, tip for the young ones, right? Yeah. The college yeah. tips that they of course need. It's still, it's still 10 cents. Like back then, you know, <laughs> that was a lot. You could, you could go to a, a divey bar and buy a beer for like a dollar 50, you know? Mm -hmm. So your 10 cents just doesn't go as far these days. No, especially in New York. <laughs> especially in New York. That is very, very true. So you have all these essays throughout here, but like, let's talk a bit about appendix because it yeah. is longer um, and it is quite an interesting tale. And, and I um, got very invested in the life of your cat, Luna yeah. and, and, you know, and, and different things like that. So can you talk about sort of appendix and how appendix even came to how this piece came to be? So I had, um, routine appendix surgery in January of 2016. And the events of appendix are all just two weeks of my life surrounding that. Um, with one towards the end, I jump ahead into what, what the future will bring, uh, the pandemic, the election of Trump, things like that. Um, but the rest of it is all about those two weeks. Um, so, it's a very um, ADD essay where, I mean, that's kind of baked into it where it keeps going on digressions all the way. Like, like I think, I think you're 20 pages in before I even wind up going to the ER for my appendix surgery. Uh, you know, I'm talking about skiing and the, you know, the things that parents used to say when we were kids about Halloween candy and all of those things. And so Normally, like, you know, in, say, the shorter pieces um, in this collection, a lot of times I'll write something and it's a subtractive process where I'll I'll be like, you don't have enough room in a 2,500 word essay to have this long diversion. But, you know, once I really got going with appendix, I was like, you know what? Go ahead. Have diversions. You know, um, it, it's, um, you know, what I said it fits in with the intestinal theme of the of the essay so i go off on a lot of asides and i think 
part of what I was shooting for there was within a two week period, I mean, two weeks of events. I mean, what I love about personal essays is personal essays, you can, they really allow you to get under somebody else's skin. And so I wanted to do that to present like through this microcosm of everything revolving around these two weeks, you get a sense of a life. Of, of my life. You get a sense of my marriage, um, our our cat who's sick during uh, the course of events here, and we're really worried that she's going to die. Um, you get a sense of, uh, you know, my crankiness, my lifestyle, my ADD, my wife's relative sensibility, you know, and my wife is a hospital administrator. So that complicates things in the story because I wind up eventually going to her hospital for a follow up. And so that's that's kind of where it came out of was that's how it wound up being so long was I allowed I allowed all of those things into the essay where it's not just about this story. It it branches out into all the different stories of my life. You know, I have to I'm a big fan and I don't think it's done enough of sort of um endnotes or footnotes in personal yeah. essays right and so i love that you made that choice um i'm not as a big fan of them in academic essays all the time but i love right. it because it's this way of um expanding without but keeping your sort of flow going in your story so can you talk about a i mean i don't know if that was a conscious choice because you also do tangents and so you have tangents and you have these footnotes so can you talk a little bit about that and that choice Sure. Uh, I mean, I I must have first encountered like I I, I don't want to place this as too much of an influence because I was already doing this in correspondence back when we used to write letters. But you know, I remember first encountering um, David Foster Wallace in the early '90s. You know, he had these famous essays that he wrote for Harper's that are now pretty well known, and he had a lot of that with the footnotes where I was like you can do that, you know? And it's this way of of where, as you said, you don't break up the flow of, you know, the main discussion, but you can cram in a whole aside in a footnote and they can be fun. Like, you know, I think one of the footnotes uh, uh, about appendicitis says, source, I Googled it. You know, so another source is, I made it up. Um, and then, you know, some of the footnotes contain more information, like on the section where I'm talking about uh, Regina Spector, who somehow wound up being kind of a character in that essay. Um, I I have a long footnote about that. I discovered that song in The Leftovers and why I love The Leftovers, you know. So, yeah, it's it's just this great device. It's really It's really kind of this fun little extra thing, like where you can... I don't know, it's almost like a game cheat, like in a video game where you can have this little pocket universe off to the side. Yes. And I, so I will say like, I really, you know, any, I'm like, yes, footnotes. I love them. <laughs> and it works well with the tangent. So um, the, another thing in this essay that might be very random, but um, you talk about a death cab for cutie song. Mm -hmm. that is on the same album of the of the song that i do what you do so i love the song i will follow you into the dark right That's and I, I love that song too it's a and, terrific song yeah and it, so i was reading your essay i was like you are talking about your song which i totally can i'm blanking on the name of right now what um, sarah said what sarah said in the way that i think about that song and i'm like what is this band doing 
Oh yeah, that 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 whole album is like yeah. I know. I I actually attended a wedding last year. Uh, actually, my wife's niece's wedding, uh, where that was one of their songs. The song you mentioned, um, uh, "I'll Follow You Into the Dark," which I was very moved by. You know, but I understand for you, you're saying so. In the essay, I said what Sarah said, which is about uh, for people who don't know this song. It, the context of that it's it, it's about somebody witnessing somebody they love dying in a hospital um the song that you mentioned i'll follow you into the dark it's kind of also about that it's about somebody dying where they're saying like you know if there's no it, you know i don't believe in heaven or hell or any of those things but that's okay because i'll follow you into the dark i feel moved just talking about it <laughs> It's a but beautiful it song. It was. And when you talked about how like that song just encapsulated this imagery and using it. And I was like, that's exactly like, I was like, damn it, that band. And I'm not a huge fan. I mean, it's not like I follow that band. They're not like right. on my huge playlist, but I, that song, I always come back to that. There's a, there's something about that song and there's a, you know, that I'm just like, they, you know, he knows how to write this beautiful like story and yeah. like, you know, four minutes or whatever it is. So yeah, exactly. Like real, like uh, I think I call it a real tearjerker in the book. Like it's it's like, you know, it it's it's a love song that has like the you know people don't usually write about that theme of of like you know mortality and dying and accidents and things like that. And and you know he wrote in both of those songs quite beautifully about those sentiments. So, you know, so throughout this, you talk about sort of um, this entrance into sort of two weeks of your life, and you spent a great deal of time hopping around, um, visiting various hospitals, um, both yes. for yourself and for your cat. And um, right. so there's a couple of things I'd love for you to talk about with uh, thinking about and writing about this. So one is um, the fun part where you kind of like have made different names for you know um all the people that you see um all the physicians that you see <laughs> um, right. based on. so can you talk a little bit about like writing about these people these people that you have um come across in you know this experience and how you sort of chose it's not only for physicians but people you sort of witnessed and you know in the waiting room and everywhere else like coming up with these names and thinking like writing about these people who could read your essay right, right or could read about right. them but like it's not a distant past right this happened relatively in the you know recently in your life um right. so can you talk a little bit about that and and some of these and and like i really love dr boy as a name yeah. for like i'm like yeah that's what i think about many doctors now um, right. but yeah <laughs> yeah i i think i think i started in that essay the the convention of doing that so all the doctors have funny names so you mentioned dr boy dr boy is the doctor who comes to see me while I'm in the hospital before my surgery. And I describe him as looking like he's 15 years old, like Doogie Howser. Uh, and I think about joking about that. And then there's something about him where I sense, don't make that joke. There's something cold about him. Um, and, you know, when I was writing the essay, the Dr. Boy almost suggested his own name, like, like, while I was writing it, like, yeah, Dr. Boy. Um, and once I'd given him that name, it began to be that every doctor I came across, I would think of a name to give them. Like there's a Dr. Beeswax at my wife's hospital. 
<laughs> my cat's veterinarian is called Dr. Katsky. Um, so there's all of, so that became kind of a running joke throughout the essay. And I gave other people names too, like our super, I call him good Godot because you're waiting for Godot. Um, I, I think w part of that has to do with the nature of um, writing memoir. Like, so in, in some of those other essays, the earlier essays, I do change people's names sometimes, or I'll change uh, a location or some identifying feature. But in like a less wired iteration of the world than the one we live in, like now in the internet era and the social media era, um, you know, if you Google my name, this will come up, this essay, this book. Um, and so when you write personal essays, the thing is, is that your stories, it's one thing for me to say bad things about myself or my wife with her permission, but it's another thing like, you know, if you and I were friends hanging out and something funny happened and uh, I wanted to write a story about Rebecca, you may not like that. And I like to have friends and, and I also, I'm not a journalist and I don't want to, you know, ruin anybody's life. So part of it for me is that just change identifying details and that gives you a little more freedom to write about all of these real people because all those doctors are real. Um, all the patients I encountered, my super in my building was, well, he's died, but he was a real person, you know? So that's partly where that convention came from. So another thing with sort of the hospitals and all the visits, and you kind of hint at this in ways is like, you talk about, um, choosing where to go based on what's going to be the busiest or what's not going to be the busiest. Or you also talk about your wife kind of getting you in to her hospital and thinking about the privilege that that is, but it's not your privilege. Right, you know, right. those kinds of, but it really does make, especially when you're in like a city like New York. Um, I remember I broke my arm when I was in Philly and I was with a friend and it was I'd fallen on it was like weekend night and so she's like okay we can't go to these hospitals because they're gonna have all the trauma they're gonna have like this is like she knew which emergency room we should go to right, right. from knowing you know she's like this is the one here's where we're gonna go because the cops won't be bringing people there the trauma <laughs> right and I, it's new york is kind of that same way when you're talking about so can you talk a little bit about just navigating the hospital system for you during this time where for yourself and also you did it for your Hat too and like yeah. so navigating multiple sort of hospital systems for yourself during this experience yeah it, I, i'd say you know so one thing i will say as advice to everybody if you're going to go into a hospital it's really good to know somebody who works in hospitals a doctor a nurse an administrator because it you know most of us um you know, we're not familiar with how everything works and we try to avoid being in hospitals. So it, it can be very useful to have somebody there, even if they don't work at that place. So yeah, my wife's a hospital administrator. So even, uh, you know, where I had my surgery was at NYU, uh, which she doesn't work there. Um, but it's useful, it, you know, to have her there because she just knows how things work. They're going to do this next. They're going to do this next. Um, and then, you know, the, later I go to her hospital for a follow through where she actually does work. Um, so she really was able to navigate that system in terms of like, you know, the, the privilege I talk about 
in the book has to do with that, you know, if it's a big waiting room, a lot of times she can just introduce me as this is my husband to the reception and they'll tend to bump me in, you know? Um, so I, I actually wound up speaking about this subject to, um, I, I have a friend who's a doctor, uh, at Stanford, and I actually wound up speaking to a, it's sort of a group of doctors that uh, meets to discuss creative writing and to read uh, books. And I got invited in to, uh, to speak about appendix because a lot of the doctors found this really fascinating from the point of view of patient experience. Like, so what you experience as a patient is, is opaque and weird, whereas from the point of view of the doctors and the other people who work from the hospital, this is every day, you know, for them. So anyway, yeah, there's a lot about that in the essay about feeling uh, not really fully understanding what's going on at any moment. But I have Natasha as my kind of uh, Beatrice, uh, like Dante's Beatrice to guide me through the system. Right. And that um, there are certain people who don't mind being checked into a hospital. And many of us who are like, yeah, if I can go home and sleep in my bed, that's what I want to do. Right. And I there was some point where where I think she was a little nervous because you wanted to you were like, I'm leaving. And she's like, well, let me make sure it's OK. And the doctor was like, well, he thought you'd feel more comfortable here. And it's in just that and not not in a way like that it makes sense because he would feel more comfortable being in the hospital. Whereas you're like, no, I want my bed. Right. 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 <laughs> because especially when I was at Natasha's hospital, you know, so because they know who I am, you know, there's this sort of thing of where they, they try to look after you a little more, which makes me nervous because uh, they're doctors and I don't want doctory things done to me. So, you know, one of the things while I was there was, you know, twice they wanted to keep me overnight just because like from their point of view, that's a privilege. We're going to give you a bed. You can stay overnight. It's safer here. And I was like, I'm not staying here. I'm going home. I'm going to get a taxi. And yeah, the the scene where I, I have that needle biopsy um, is the one where uh, I have decided I need to get out of this place. I'm in an ER and ER is not a safe place to be and I want to leave. And then uh, Natasha's like, oh, okay, okay, I'll talk to the doctor because he wants to keep me over. And just as you said, it was like, he was like, oh, I just thought you might like that to stay overnight. <laughs> really? <laughs> you would like to hang out with us. Yeah. Yeah, we have a bed. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, no, no, I don't. And, and <laughs> I um when I had my two children and it reminded me of this because the first was an emergency C-section and so with the second and so I and I got really sick and I had to be in the hospital so with the second they were like you want to go home? like like two days later you ready to go home I'm like yes I can go I can just leave they're right. like uh-huh and I'm like yes I do I want my bed <laughs> Right. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, I understand that. Yeah. Nobody wants to be in a hospital. <laughs> no, no. You know? um, and so the midst, it's like, I feel too, like things compound on you because in the midst of all of this, there's also a snowstorm, right? Like right. a huge snowstorm in New York. Right. Um, so you have all that going on. So it's like, how do you navigate the city? And I think one of your asides was something about letting people know that you really don't just take taxis everywhere, but um, like for these purposes, you need to take taxis everywhere. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cause I, cause I threw out it because I just had surgery 
I'm taking a taxi from, you know, back from Natasha's hospital to here and all of that. And then suddenly it was like, wow, that's a lot of taxis. In in real life, I ride the subway. I just want you to know that. <laughs> I am a New Yorker. We ride the subway. So, but the other thing that comes up is you have a cat, Luna, throughout this experience who is really having um, some traumatic experiences. So do you mind talking a little bit about no, your cat? No, not at all. I'd like... love to talk about Luna. <laughs> yeah. So uh, Luna had these bouts of anorexia and in the in the book... Uh, post-surgery, there's a blizzard, and Luna, um, around the time that I got sick with appendicitis, stopped eating. So she'd done this a few times before. Normally, she had a voracious appetite, but she would go into this sort of anorexic spiral where the from not eating, she'd feel sicker and sicker, and then she didn't want to eat because she felt sick. And so in the course of um, the narrative in Appendix, you know, at one point, it's it's been just about 10 days that she hasn't eaten, and I'm really worried that she's going to die. And, um, yeah, we L Luna was so... Luna died recently. She did not die in the book. That's a spoiler alert, but Luna did not die uh, back then. She died about a year ago. Uh, she was 15, and uh, we still grieve her a lot. We have a new cat, Jasper, but we still... Luna was very, very important to us. And so it was this thing of, I, I think I mentioned in there, like I call it a happy fellowship. We we don't have any children. And so it was me, Natasha and Luna, um, you know, moving through three different apartments and, and this was kind of our family. So Luna is a major character in this essay, which was difficult. That presented some technical difficulties, Kat as character. But I do love it because I think like it really when you, you know, you mentioned earlier, it's about the sort of two weeks in your life that like animals are often very much a part of that central to that central to some of the many of the decisions we make if you're a pet owner, right? Like, right. do I go out of town? Do I leave this? Like, what do we do? We have to get I, I have two cats and a dog. And sometimes it's like, well, we have to get back for the dog, right? And right. So sometimes it's a nice excuse because it's like, I'm sorry, I got to go walk the dog. <laughs> right. right. But it is like, but also like that does like it matters, like, am I going to go on this trip? How long am I going to leave the animals? So I appreciated that um, we got to experience how she was part of some of that decision-making you had going on at that time. Right. Like I talk about a reluctance to go on away on vacations because the our apartment building, it's that, that aspect of things has improved, but you know, it used to be that we were constantly getting flooded from above us and our neighbors had once set their apartment on fire. So all of those things going away on vacation, I'd be like, I hope she's all right. She's there. You know, we, we always had like a cat sitter, uh, come to feed her, but um, the cat sitter usually did sometimes would sleep here, but for the most part, he often didn't. So I'd worry about overnight that this whole building would collapse or something like that. Yes. And then hopefully the cat would find her way to you, right? Because that's what will happen. But yeah, but I think like having that pen in there. And then, so you write this, and then can you talk a little bit about your decision to, at the end, you sort of, um, Talk about the future, right? You bring us into the future and you bring us into Trump, right? You could have kind of just encapsulated and encapsulated this um, piece in the time period it was, but uh, can you talk a little bit about that choice to kind of um, talk about what happened 
uh, in the next sort of four years of, of, yeah. of the world. And yeah, actually, um, a magazine called uh, Bloom Magazine, the literary one. There's another big Bloom magazine that's about flowers, I think. But uh, published that excerpt that uh, from that you're talking about from Appendix. So that's Appendix is actually has five parts. That's the last part. And actually, in the earliest drafts of the essay, uh, the part that you're talking about where I leap forward from 2016 to talk about the years to come was not originally in there. Um, but I was writing it during the pandemic. So I was working on this essay. Um, you know, it was written in different sections that were blocked out. And um a big theme of appendix is uh, growing older and mortality. Um, and the theme of mortality runs through the whole essay. And then suddenly we were in New York during the pandemic. We stayed in New York because Natasha's a hospital administrator, so we had to stay. Um, and death is everywhere suddenly. So I... I had to write about that. I had to write about what was happening that year. Um, and and I think originally I'd, I'd meant to just write about the election of Trump because that happened at the end of 2016. But that just led into the world that we were living in in 2020, um, where a lot of the things in the book I talk about, like, oh, I'm kind of afraid to go skiing. I never ride a bicycle, all of those things. And part of that section about talking about all the things that we did in 2020 was about Natasha and I began riding bicycles. I um, I even began riding a moped for a little while. Um, all of those things, suddenly it just felt like, well, you may die before this year is done. And so the 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 fear of doing things began to seem like um irrelevant in some ways about about, you know, you only have this time to live. So I I actually really love that section and thank you for bringing it up that 2020 section where that's you know my my take on what that year was like because there was a lot of kind of magical things about that year. Everybody was hanging around in the parks all day long, you'd see people working in the parks, people with families. It was actually quite beautiful that in the parks, uh, it was almost like something out of the 19th century. And then, you know, that summer was uh, also the Black Lives Matter protests sort of exploded across the country. And that was very much happening in New York. But it felt like, because Trump was still president, and New York, I, a lot of New Yorkers felt very abandoned by Trump during the pandemic where, you know, he was encouraging all sorts of, uh, you know, don't wear masks and all of these things, um, felt very abandoned. And then the Black Lives Matter movement partly felt like this sort of, I mean, it was about a very specific thing. Of course, it was, it, you know, it was, it was about uh, state violence against black people and the death of George Floyd, the murder of George Floyd. But it also felt like we've had enough, like this kind of thing. And um, there was, as I wrote in the book, there was a strange joy to those protests. They They started off kind of rough in New York, but then it really became this thing that was just going on all the time where, um, you know, they'd gather at certain 
places and you saw so many young people doing that. I, I really feel it energized all these 20 year olds and even younger people who were otherwise doing remote learning at home. So it was it was a new civil rights movement. That's, you know, and that that felt hopeful in that year. Mm hmm. Yeah. So we, you know, we've been talking for a while about your essays in your collection. So I'm hoping you can, um, before I ask you my final question that I usually ask if you can kind of read a excerpt from one sure. of these for us. Sure. Um, let me just flip to the page of uh, what I think would be a good choice. I'll, I'll read you just the opening of the essay called Neighbor. How's that? Sounds great. <clears throat> what is it about the word neighbor? that fills us with such moral ambivalence. Ah, the age-old dilemma, love thy neighbor or drunkenly urinate on his doorstep at three in the morning? In the abstract, we use the word neighbor as if it refers to something more than the stranger who happens to live near us. It's the neighborly thing to do, we say of our good deeds, as if moral virtue bubbles up wherever random human beings happen to eat, sleep, and shit in rough proximity. A neighbor is not a relative or a friend, but neighbors are commonly thought to inspire a warm and fuzzy camaraderie, as in Mr. Rogers' creepy invitation, won't you be my neighbor? On the other hand, the word neighbor is also invested with a peculiar paranoia, as in, what will the neighbors think? I heard this a lot as a child because we had a lot to hide. It was a function of the social geometry of the suburbs. The inside of the house is for us. The outside is for them, the neighbors. The neighbors got the wash car, the mowed lawn, the friendly wave from across the street. We got the crusty unwashed dishes, the overflowing stacks of ancient newspapers, the dingy under underwear strewn across the furniture. The neighbors got my father leaving for work in a three-piece suit and tie, his face neatly shaven, his keys swinging smartly in his hand as he approached the gleaming car. We got the early performance of my father raging through the house in nothing but a pair of sagging jockey briefs and a single black sock, shouting violent and obscene threats against the other black sock, the missing sock, the stupid goddamn cocksucking sock, as my mother followed in his wake, hissing, lower your voice, the neighbors. Thank you. So I'm going to ask you one final question on that. Um, what else are you working on? Like time to promote. So what's new? Um, what do you got going on? I don't have a specific thing to promote yet. Um, I have been taking notes on uh, new short essays I'd like to write like Neighbor. Um, before I wrote Appendix, I had been working on a long essay that was um about Natasha and I, about a different chapter of our marriage. And some of that got worked into appendix. And I have been wondering whether I should try to, because I, I worked on that for quite a while and there's a lot there. I've been wondering whether I should try to work on that again. The problem is the events that happen there are even more distant than they were when I was first writing it. Um, and the other part is that some of that material wound up in appendix. So anyway, I um, I I would like to mostly work on short things for a little while before I revisit doing a long thing because appendix was quite a quite an ordeal writing that. 
Um, I will give a shout out to a magazine I'm associated with, which is uh, Exacting Clam. That is uh, my publisher, Sagging Meniscus. This is their official literary magazine. I'm associated with that magazine as well. Um, I'm on the staff and it's a it's a great literary magazine. It's always quirky and weird and high quality. So that's that's currently what's going on. Well, Tyler, it has been wonderful talking to you about this collection. Um, Tyler Gore, who wrote My Life of Crime, Essays and Other Entertainments. Thanks for talking with me for New Books Network. Thanks so much, Rebecca. I've really had a great time being here.